0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash SlashFilm.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to SlashFilm Daily for Thursday, February 13th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is SlashFilm Editor-in-Chief Peter Saretta, and joining me on today's podcast is SlashFilm Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Shwaitran Bui.
2: Hey, everyone.
1: And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Brad is not here today. Uh, I am recovering from a cold, which you can probably hear in my voice a little bit. Uh, This week is Valentine's Day. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Does anybody here have anything exciting planned for Valentine's Day?
3: Well, I was going to see Fancy Island with my wife, uh, but no draft houses in Austin are playing it. Uh, Only like the AMCs. So we're no longer seeing Fancy Island for Valentine's Day. We're going to stay home and watch movies on our couch.
1: I, I know that you love the Alamo Draft House, Jacob, but like so much so that if the movie's not playing there, you won't see it.
3: Um, we were very picky about it, and seeing a horror movie on opening day in a uh non-draft house is a nightmare, so no thank you.
1: Okay, so it sounds like no other Valentine's Day plans here at Slash Film uh headquarters. Uh, let's let's move on, let's talk about what we've been doing. Uh I this this past couple weeks I've been playing a lot with uh film lighting because i i bought some film lights to i have a my uh my condo is a rather like large like two story like loft and it's rather you know just like this huge room a huge room which doesn't do well for lighting does not do well for audio which is why i'm recording in my closet uh on this podcast and um I've been trying to find ways of lighting this properly, so we sometimes do unboxing videos on Ordinary Adventures, and I was going to buy this, like, big lighting setup, and I was talking to Slash Filmcast uh, uh, host David Chen, and he was like, Peter, do not buy that lighting setup. That's way too expensive. And I was like, oh, what should I buy? And he was like, you should buy this lighting setup. So he suggested this other cheaper lighting setup. And the the reason why he suggested this cheaper lighting setup was because he bought the exact setup that I bought. And he found out that it like he still owns it. But he was like, you know, you can get what you need uh, with this smaller setup, which he also bought. So uh, he's recording his own uh, YouTube videos. He's been uh, taking a sabbatical of sorts from his uh, main job. So if you want to check out his youtube channel i'll put that in the show notes but he's been doing some film reviews and stuff and they look beautiful and i i kind of have been asking him for his advice on this so this this past week we recorded this unboxing video because we at ordinary adventures we have a po box and a lot of people send us like stuff uh fan art products all sorts of stuff We, we and we unbox it and uh I'm pretty uh happy with how the lighting setup got got, got put together. So if, if you want to I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh I, I am you know, it's something that was way out of my wheelhouse. I don't know how to light things, but I think it looks very cinematic. So I'm 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 kinda of proud of myself. Um Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Ben, what have you been reading? So it's taken me many
0: months. I started this right before Halloween, but I finally finished reading Dracula. I've just been very bad about uh, making, like, carving out time to read books. But um, yeah, I finally finished Dracula. I was like, I was like, there's no way I'm going to finish this before Halloween. But I want to read it during the month of October to sort of like try to get myself in that, uh, you know, spooky mood, I guess. Um, And I remembered that uh, I think HT read this not too long ago, right? I remember you talking about it.
2: Yeah, I loved it.
0: Yeah, I ended up really liking it, too. I think um, it it really like the pacing is uh, it started out a little slow because I, I think a character basically just gets trapped in a castle for a little while. And I was kind of like, all right, where where is this going? What's happening here? But once that, uh, I guess, tiny subplot gets sort of resolved, um, the rest of the, the book really uh, moves very well. And and the whole thing is written out in a series of letters and diaries and things like that and um you know it sort of strains credulity when characters are like recounting conversations that they theoretically had hours before and it's like word for word exactly what they you know what these people were saying but uh if you can sort of jump past that little tiny logic leap um i had a lot of fun with this book i thought it was really great jacob
3: i know you're a big fan of this too right yeah, some of my favorite books of all time. And the uh, apostolary style where a novel is written is letters, diary entries is uh, I love the death. I think it's why I also love found footage horror It's the idea that even when it strains, you know, uh, realism, it's the idea of the feeling that you found something that maybe you shouldn't be reading kind of lurks the back of your brain. I think Dracula just feels like that the entire way through. Yeah, it does. Um, Chris,
0: I know you're obviously like a big horror guy. Have you ever read Dracula?
4: Oh yeah, uh, many many times. It's it's great. It's I I like it more than Frankenstein, which I think is very boring to read, but Dracula <laughs> is great.
0: Yeah, uh, it's awesome. Like I I've I think I've only seen uh maybe like the God, I'm trying to think. I I have not seen that many uh, Dracula adaptations. I know it's been adapted and there've been a ton of different versions and stuff like that, but it's just so crazy to think that this book was written in you know, the late 1800s, like um, almost uh, 1897, it says. Um, and it is so, like, there's so many, uh, you know, so much of the vampire lore that has just blended into all sorts of pop culture things originated here. And it's so crazy to, to think about it that way. A lot of times when I go back and um, visit or revisit things that are, that like spawned an entire genre, it kind of feels a little boring and a little, um, I don't know, a little rote because we've seen those tropes recycled so many times in pop culture, but Dracula really does not feel that way at all. It feels like super fresh and, um, and just really like a, a totally compelling read most of the way through so I was a big big fan of it uh, I would recommend reading it if you are interested in and maybe uh, you'll probably read it much faster than I did since it took me <laughs> three or four months or something to read and it's not that long of a book
1: Wow uh, you must have seen Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 film Brim Stoker's Dracula right
0: I did but I was probably 14 or 15 when I saw it. And I, after reading this book, I really want to go back and revisit a lot of the uh, the Dracula sort of pop culture stuff that I've have seen at a younger age, but, but now we'll be able to contextualize better having actually read the book. And I know there's like a new, um, a Dracula series on Netflix right now that comes from um, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss, the guys who did. Don't, uh, don't Sherlock.
3: Don't <laughs> okay.
0: Watch. I was going to ask if any of you had seen it. Cause I'd heard, I think uh, Jeff Canata on a recent slash film episode was saying that he really liked it a lot, but I had heard or sort of read some mixed headlines about it when uh, I guess when the embargo lifted on that, I was wondering if any of you had actually watched it, Chris, it sounds like you have. It's, very, it's it's awful.
4: Don't watch it. Oh, no.
3: <laughs> yeah. What you'll soon discover, Ben, is that there's no such thing as a perfect Dracula adaptation. I mean, the Universal one from the 30s is good, but it's really based on the stage play adaptation, so it feels very stage bound. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Coppola version is a lot of fun, uh, but it really is incredibly over the top and injects in a lot of stuff that's not from the book at all, despite having Bram Stoker in the title. Uh, so... I have yet to see a Dracula adaptation that, for me, captures the real spirit of the book, and, and it feels more fresh to me for that reason than any of the films.
1: What is the best Dracula adaptation for you?
3: Oh, goodness. Um, I don't know. Because I, I Honestly, I'd probably go closest to any of the Hammer films uh, from the 50s with uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Not because of good adaptations. They, they change the story a lot, but because I feel like the direct monstrous uh version of dracula played by christopher lee and like the really intellectual quiet uh evan helsing played by peter cushing for me really reflect the tone of the book even though the story doesn't
1: chris for you what is the best dracula movie
3: uh i don't know it's the best but my favorite is
4: is the coppola one which i just i love it's so lush and gothic and and uh it's like one of the last movies to use like all practical in-camera effects. Like, I, I can't think of another film after this that, that uses, like, 100% in-camera effects. And uh, it does, you know, it turns Dracula into sort of, like, a romantic figure, which he is not in the book. So it's it, on that level, it's not very faithful. But it is more faithful than most adaptations. Like, it's, it's one of the only films that has, like, an ending where people are, you know, there's a cowboy riding a horse, and, like, that's all in the book. And they usually leave that out of the film. So... While it, it it takes a lot of liberties, it, it does feel the closest to the book I think to date.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say I I remember like most Dracula adaptations or or my memory my sort of foggy memory of them is have been like the scope has been really really limited. And this book, I was so surprised at how wide open it is. It really is not just like a stuffy castle sort of drama. It's much more like. Um, a cross-country adventure kind of thing with like this ragtag group of people, uh, and and it really like, there's like boat stuff and there's you know there are people who are like traversing cities and countrysides and all that, and I just I don't remember really seeing a lot of that um that huge scope in a lot of Dracula adaptations before. So yeah, uh, Quincy
3: Quincy Morris, the American cowboy who fights Dracula with a Bowie knife, is the best Dracula character, and yet he's cut out almost all the movies. It's crazy.
1: Oh, bummer. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. It probably says something about the quality of movies that we're getting in theaters in February. Uh, like this time of year is kind of like a wasteland uh, that we don't have much crossover here on uh, today's podcast or this week's podcast. Uh, but we do have one crossover thing, and this is a streaming movie. H you saw All the Boys, P.S. I Still Love You.
2: Yes. So I saw *To All the Boys* P.S. I Still Love You. It's the sequel to *All the bo- to *To All the Boys I Loved Before*, uh, which I found to be incredibly charming and delightful, despite some of its more shallow sort of um, trope uh, tropes that it hits. But um, I actually I really enjoyed To All the Boys, P.S. I Still Love You, because it kind of, you know, it's one of the rare rom-coms that goes after the happily ever after and deals with um, the romantic leads sort of insecurities. And while it doesn't really get any more realistic than the first one does, um, I just, yeah, I think it's just incredibly charming and um, well shot, as well as having really great performances from its leads Lana Condor and uh, Noah Centineo and newcomer to the um film series uh John Ambrose's actor who I remember a lot and I I know who he is.
0: It's very <laughs> obvious that you know exactly what this guy's name is.
2: Jordan Fisher. <laughs> exactly. Uh yeah, I just it's um it's definitely a the equivalent of you know a fluffy cake or a a glass of light white wine but um it's really enjoyable and um you know it's all I always welcome return to rom-coms that uh, are utterly sincere and um excited about the the genre and about love and and uh teen teen interactions so uh yeah I enjoyed it to all the boys
1: and Ben you also saw this I did.
0: I was not as high on it as HG. I really liked the first movie. I thought that was um, really like a really uh, surprising and and um, I don't know, like a fluffy romantic comedy, but one that uh, actually I don't know. I don't know. It felt like what I want from a Netflix romantic comedy. And this one, it complicates the story a little bit, and the, I thought the pacing was. Um, it sort of dragged it. The movie's like an hour and 40 minutes, which is not very long, but it felt way longer than it was to me. I think, uh, by throwing those narrative complications in there, it sort of, it, it tweaked the chemistry a little bit between Lana Condor and Noah Centineo. And it, it wasn't quite as, uh, as charming of a movie overall because of that. And I appreciate that there's a I understand that there's a trade-off there with like, uh, you know, it, it can't be all nice and, you know, great chemistry if the characters are going through some interesting uh, uh, twists in their relationship. But um, I don't know, just on a pure enjoyment level, I, I like the first one a lot more. I think I think this one, the script wasn't quite there for me. And it felt more like, oh, is this what is this more in line with what Netflix is doing with their romantic comedies? Like it it, it felt more disposable. And uh, Lana Condor is great. But um I don't know. I just, I was a little bit disappointed with this one, especially compared to the first.
1: Okay. Well, I only saw one movie this past week. I saw Joe Carnahan's boss level. This is a movie that doesn't even have a release date yet. It it might not even get a release. It might not get a theatrical release. It might not even end up on streaming services. And that's why it was screened. Uh, thanks to a Collider screening, uh, uh, Q and a thing. They, um, Joe's basically trying to get word out about this film that it's not like a complete piece of crap <laughs> that like, a, you know, it should deserve a release. And, and this is one of those movies that was produced by MoviePass Films. Uh, it was actually kind of funny when the film plays, like it starts off with the MoviePass Films logo and it got some chuckles uh, from the crowd. And uh, but it's, it, it, you know, a lot has been said about the the failure of MoviePass and how uh, you know, but not so great people ran that company. <laughs> uh, th- this film, I think when it was announced, was supposed to be a $45 million film. And I think like during production of this, they lost, I want to say probably 75% of its funding during the production because of, you know, the failure of movie so this movie which is an action movie, th- this is a um it is a time loop action movie. So it's kind of like uh Edge of Tomorrow, Live Die Repeat, whatever you want to call it. Um where it is about this guy who's played by Frank Grillo and he is experiencing the same day over and over again. He there's some people out to kill him. His uh, ex-wife has been killed the previous day which he can't go back to and um He's trying to find a way to live past a certain time. And I I think what's unique about this over, like, the Groundhog Day, you know, time loop premise that we've lived with all these years is that this movie starts after our main character has already mastered the world. He's become a godlike figure where he knows where everything's going to, you know, what's going to happen at every second. And he's kind of, like, figured most of the stuff out. Whereas usually, like, these kind of films, like, it takes until, like, you know, that's second to third the back of half of the film, like for the person to like kind of gain that mastery of the world. Um, and I think because of that you lose some of the fun of uh, us being along for the ride. It's kind of like we're always chasing after like what he already knows. Uh, but it's a fun film. Uh, it does seem like it was made for a lot less money than it should have been made for. Uh, but Joe Carnahan is good at that. Joe Carnahan, like, you know, uh, one of his first films, was his first film NARC? I think it was. Uh, it was made for, like, next to nothing. And it, it looked like a, a, a bigger Hollywood, uh, uh, you know, lower level film. And um, th- th- this movie, I'm, I'm not going to say this is a great movie. It's not like, oh, my God, this is amazing. It needs a release. But this movie deserves a release. It was filmed in, like, something, 20-something days. And it's, uh, it's remarkable that a film... Film, it feels so coherent and it like feels so big uh, for all the disaster that the the production uh, incurred. Like I, I, During the Q&A, Joe Carnahan was, was joking that the uh, producers, which I assume he means the movie past people, uh, their entire involvement was showing up on set one day to take photos of Mel Gibson, who plays the bad guy in this film. And that was the only time he ever heard or saw uh, talked to them. So, uh, so there's that. Uh, boss level, will it ever get a release? I don't know. Uh, it's very curious. It's uh, I'm I'm wondering if like maybe someone like Neon. When now Neon's been elevated. Like is J- Jacob? Is Neon now out outside of the like genre industry now that they've won in uh, won all these uh, uh, like gold awards?
3: I think they've been out been out of there for a few years now. I mean, they've been trying to find that big, you know, breakout hit. They've been trying to find the the indie movie that could. And I think Parasite definitely pushes them up. But they've been chasing, you know, uh, bigger success for a few years now. And I don't know if they want to touch with yeah. Mo Gibson in it because, uh, considering there there are there is enough wrong with Boss Level, with just <laughs> Gibson's involvement, makes it a tough sell for a company that wants to be classy like Neon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, I mean, it's unfortunate because like Joe Carnahan seems like a good guy, and he's he's, he's one of those guys that will tell you how it is. And and Frank Grillo, I don't love him as an actor. Uh, he he feels like he's always acting a little too hard. <laughs> but um, but uh, this is not a film that deserves to be like, dumped on VOD and given like no like it, it feels like it needs to get something better of a release. But I, I don't know. We'll have to follow this and see if see what happens to the boss level because it it is very unfortunate. Uh, a lot a lot of good people involved, even though you know there's some bad people like the movie past people and and uh, Mel Gibson. So um, okay, let's. Uh, I also saw the first double episode of Survivor: Winners at War. This is the forty fortieth season of Survivor. And for this 40th season, every single contestant on the season is a winner of Survivor. And uh, they, so it's, it's kind of like this big epic, uh, like, this is, you know, the Avengers Infinity War of Survivor. <laughs> if you want to put that out there and uh it's interesting because they're also introducing some new mechanics to the game uh these new tokens which people can win and it's a new currency that they can use to buy idols and food and all sorts of stuff it's really not gone into that far in the first episode uh but it's it's interesting that you know when survivor started there was no immunity idols there were you know it was basically just the bare bones of the game and like many of the board games that uh Jacob, you and I play, you know, every few years the the expansion gets released and some more rules get added to the game and make it a little bit more complicated, uh, make it a little bit more, give it a little bit more depth. And I, I f- I'm interested to see how these new tokens affect the game, but it, it's great to see like fan favorites back together on an island. You know, there, there's some people that were on, that were, that are on here that when they were on Survivor, there was no such thing as an iPhone. So, like, it, it's crazy how much the game has changed, and seeing those players adapt, and the, the first two episodes are qu- quite good. Um, And it's it's also interesting, too, because these people have developed friendships off the show since they, the airing of the shows, so some of these people were on uh, seasons with each other some of these people have developed friendships off the show in you know the 20 years that have played out since then some of these people have like appeared together on like poker tournaments on tv and stuff like that so there's all sorts of like relationships that are going into the show that you don't usually see in survivor and and how that's affecting the show is is very interesting so uh so if, if you're not into survivor i'm not sure if this is like the season to jump in it's it's kind of like uh telling someone to be like your first marvel movie should be you know avengers endgame or whatever avengers infinity war but uh it, it is quite exciting and i i really enjoyed the first uh, double episode
2: are you saying this is the avengers endgame of reality shows peter
1: it is and it's the first time in a reality show history that they upped the 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 the, the prize from one million dollars to two million dollars, so uh, th- that's kind of an incredible prize for uh, a reality TV show. But um, okay, anyways, uh, let's move on. Jacob, what have you been watching?
3: Uh, I caught up with Birds of Prey, which uh, HT saw and already talked about, so I'll be brief here. I think Birds of Prey is really terrific. It's incredibly fun. Could be stylish. It feels chaotic and out of control, but in a way that feels intentional. It feels like. Uh, the chaos is harnessed to really represent Harley Quinn, and Margo Margot Robbie's state of mind. And it's just a really satisfying, good time of movie. It wears its influence on its sleeve, it has this heart-hitting action, it's colorful. It is just, man, it is everything I think the Suicide Squad wanted it to be. It is just this really fun, colorful, personality-driven action movie. Uh, and I'm a little disappointed that people haven't turned out as and as big of a drove to see it. I really hope that picks up people gets out. It's Birds of Prey is a lot of fun. Uh, and on the opposite end of the spectrum, I saw 1917. Uh, Sam Mendes' new movie that was supposed to win Best Picture and did not. When Parasite uh, won, uh, but I wouldn't have been mad if it did win. Uh, 1917 is very good and at times excellent. I run a little hot and cold in Mendes. He's made more movies that I like than I don't, uh, but I think this movie uh, is really outstanding. And the technical exercise part of it, the fact that it's, you know, made it look like one shot. I think really works and it works a lot better than something like the Revenant where I feel like the cinematography is really calling attention to itself constantly it really feels like it's saying look at me look at me look at me whereas 1917 cinematography really tells the story the camera is always finding uh angles and positions to really place the characters in the Portraits that I think actually work and uh, feel less showy and more about revealing the character Revealing the story in a way that is effective and feels like you're on a journey as opposed to being you know A complete and total show-off and also uh, George McKay the lead actor in this is uh, outstanding I look forward to seeing more from him. So yeah, that's all I've been seeing other than that Peter I've just been watching a lot of TV. I've seen before while I do Model painting so right now I'm I'm between major movie projects.
1: Yes, Uh, Ben. What have you been watching?
3: So I watched The Emperor's New
0: Groove on Disney+. Plus. This is one of those movies that um, I guess that there's like a big support group for this, and I just missed it at the time. I never got around to seeing this. came out in 2000. Uh, it stars David Spade and uh, John Goodman. They do the the um, uh, voices for the lead characters. Eartha Kitt is in it as well. Uh, Patrick Warburton. He's I, I think Patrick Warburton's character, who is sort of like this goofy idiot, is sort of like the only redeeming quality of this entire movie for me um he's pretty amusing but the rest of the film man I do not understand why anybody likes this movie I think uh oh no actually I heard a gasp did you grow up at a point where like (laughs) this 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 movie is like beloved to you
2: yeah this came at like the perfect ample time when I watched this movie and I love it and I still refer back to it Every now and then, it's, you're oh. breaking my heart a little bit. Then,
0: oh, HT, this movie is so bad. It's so no, bad. it's a
2: good movie. It's <laughs> no. funny. It's, it's tongue in cheek, and it's um, it's definitely a little. The comedy, I I feel like wouldn't age well. I haven't seen it in a while, but it's just it's so good and so funny. Whatever, you're wrong, Ben. Oh
0: no, HT. I did not find this funny, yeah. almost in the least. I think I think Patrick Warburton's character is the only character who really made me crack a smile in the whole thing. And David Spade and and. Like, I understand that he's playing a character who's supposed to be unlikable, but it's so miserable to just, like, spend time with that guy who is, like, so self-centered. He plays, like, a, uh, I don't know, like a, a leader, like a an emperor, I guess, of a... Uh of a nation who is just completely self-centered and uh, John Goodman's character is like this peasant who lives in a town who um, uh, David Spade's character wants to like take over that town and replace it with like a a giant pool or something like a water park in his own image. And the movie is supposed to be about him like learning to be a better person, but it really is, uh, oh man, HT, I'm so sorry. This movie is it's so trashy. It's like
2: I, I will say that it came at the time when Disney was trying to do something a little bit too self-aware and campy with its animated films. You see a little bit in, in Hercules where it's very self-effacing and, and very sort of um, trying to go with modern referential humor. And I think The Emperor's New Groove really does have that like times 10. It and, it, you know, it's in the vein of what was coming out at the time, like Shrek, for example, and other DreamWorks films that were very just kind of uh, thought themselves to be very funny and smug. Um, I liked it. I thought it was great back then. I will say I, if I revisit it now, it probably wouldn't be as good as I remembered. But I still have a great affection for that. And I think some of the the bits are so funny. I think the lover <laughs> bit was hilarious. Um, so, yeah. How, how old were different.
1: you when you watched that, H.J.?
2: Oh, I don't know. Well, maybe eight, nine. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was the funniest thing to me when I was a kid. In so.
3: HD's defense, I watched this for the first time about a year ago, and I liked it. So
2: there you go. I,
3: I'll just say, I'll, I'll go ahead, Peter.
1: I would highly recommend if you have haven't seen this, Ben, which I'm guessing you probably haven't. There's a documentary called The Sweatbox, which is I, I don't think it's out in any official release, but you can find it on YouTube um and it's a 2002 documentary that was produced i think it was directed by Sting's wife who came on board because he was asked to you know create the song for Kingdom of the Sun which is the original movie of uh which got turned into the Emperor's New Groove and this movie called The Sweatbox kind of shows uh the slow and painful transformation process of uh, what happened to this film and mm. uh, the creative conflicts and uh, the sweatbox named after the room where the, the animators would go into and basically show their like dailies of what they've created and basically be, it was called the sweatbox because the person be, showing their dailies would be like, you know, it was this dark dank room and they'd be sweating their asses off. Um, but I would, I would highly recommend that because it, it kind of gives a perspective of, how the movie was made and it, it's one of those things that like would have never been made otherwise other than it being directed by sting's wife who is associated with the film mm-hmm. and disney's kind of tried to bury it but uh it you can be found on youtube so
0: it's that is really interesting because i was gonna say as like a, a final note on this movie the one thing that i was that i was gonna leave with was that uh it really feels like this movie got chopped up and and Like the script is all over the place. There's this there's this uh, chase scene that is really emblematic of what I'm talking about. So near the end of the movie, the lead characters are being chased by a couple of uh, of other supporting characters. And it turns into like a map scene, like um, Raiders of the Lost Ark or something where there's like a dotted line where it follows the character's journey across the land that they're supposed to be going over, and it's so clear that they like ran out of money, or just decided to, you know, cut huge chunks out of the movie um, in order to get them back to this uh, this one location. And at the end of this uh, chase montage. A character, like these characters who are supposed to be, you know, way far away <clears throat> um, at this point in the film, they show up uh, unexpectedly and one of the characters like stops and says, wait a second, how are they here? They were supposed to be, you know, all, how did they beat us here? Because this this map montage showed that they were way behind us at this point. And, and Patrick Warburton's character like pulls down a map. He stops the scene basically and pulls down a map and goes like, huh, I don't know. By all accounts, there's no way that those characters characters should be here at this point and the the villain is just like huh oh well and then they move on from there and i'm like <laughs> wait a second you can't do that what do you no no i refuse to allow this so ben, you're
3: describing a very good scene in a very funny movie ah
0: uh, jacob no you cannot possibly give this comedy points when it's so clearly a workaround a production
3: workaround it, it is, is like... a di- it is a Disney movie working on Looney Tunes rules. But I respect the hell out of that. Uh, I don't respect a single thing about that movie. So
0: anyway, let's move on to the, the other thing that I've been watching, which is uh, Train to Busan, which is a movie I respect a lot more than <laughs> The Emperor's New Groove. This movie came out in 2016. It's on Netflix right now. It's uh, a zombie movie um, from South Korea. It is from uh, director Jung Sang-ho, and it stars uh, Gong Yoo, Jung Yu mi and Ma dong Silk, who I thought was awesome in this movie. I don't remember if I've seen him in other things before, but he plays, for those of you who have seen Train to Busan, he plays, like, sort of the bigger guy who... Um, like tapes up his his arms and he's constantly like punching zombies in the face. Uh, that description makes the movie sound dumber than it actually is. This movie I, I actually found to be a really, really emotional zombie film, like maybe the most emotional zombie film that I've ever seen, which I was not expecting. I knew it was going to be, you know, sort of an action packed um you know, like a thrill ride kind of movie because Train to Busan is like one of the, or was one of the most successful South Korean movies uh, at the time. It made, you know, a ton of money, money in theaters and was like this big international crossover hit. And uh, it's been in my queue for a long time. I finally decided to check it out largely because, uh, you know, everybody after Parasite was talking about all these great South Korean movies and, and there are so many that I have not seen. Um, so I just wanted to uh, to sort of cross that, cross that one off my list. And um, part of me was wondering if it might feel a little bit like homework, but it—I mean—I could—it could not be farther from the truth. This movie is just like so fun all the way through, but it's also kind of sad and and really emotional at the end. Um, so anyway, I would highly recommend it. Uh, actually, uh, Choi Woo Shik, who is in Parasite, is—he uh, plays a supporting role uh, in this movie too. So if you're a, a fan of Parasite, if that's like your first movie um you know that you've seen from south korea maybe check out train to busan i think we actually just published an article on slashfilm.com about other south korean movies that you should check out too so maybe we can link to that in the show notes yeah. this movie is so note good that,
2: oh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing and i also want to note that Madong Suk, who is um you know the heavy who really is the breakout character and an actor of this movie uh will be appearing in eternals the eternals marbles yeah. film so oh, nice yeah using That's his awesome. uh,
3: americanized name don lee but it
1: is the same actor cool Okay, uh, Chris, what have you been watching?
4: Uh, I watched Brave, which is one of the few Pixar movies I hadn't seen. And uh, you know, since I have the, the free trial of Disney Plus right now, my wait, wife wait, and I what, just-
1: what other Pixar movies have you not seen? I don't know. That's one of the few. I, I don't know. Have you I seen The Good see Dinosaur? It?
4: I have seen that. I think a, oh. I haven't
1: seen a Bugs Life, actually.
4: That's like the only one. And I haven't seen like- the, the car sequels oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah but beyond that this was like the the one i was most interested in seeing basically and it was fine it's it's not like the best pixar movie but it's it's charming it's it's well made i liked it so there you have it brave an old movie if you want to watch that it's on disney plus and i also watched the pharmacist which is a new netflix uh true crime thing and that was very good it's very interesting because um they sort of solve the crime in the first episode, and then the rest. There's like three more or four more episodes that, that makes the story sort of uh, bigger than you thought it was going to be. Um, it's about this the this, this pharmacist living in Louisiana, and his son gets killed while buying crack, and uh, the cops don't really like care about it, you know, because it's like, oh, who cares about this guy buying crack? So the, this pharmacist basically solves the crime on his own and he finds the killer on his own after doing just like basic uh private detective work he, he, and that all happens in the first episode but then he starts because he works as a pharmacist he starts to see more and more people his son's age are coming into his pharmacy with uh, uh really high doses of uh oxycotton prescriptions and he starts to get, like, because, you know, his son died as a result of a a crack epidemic, he starts getting, like, really suspicious, and he finds out there's this, like, really shady doctor in town who's just writing prescriptions for money for anyone who wants them, and he just sets out to basically stop this doctor, and uh, it was was very well done and very interesting, and it's not, like, your typical true crime thing because, like I said, they, you know, they solved the the quote-unquote crime in the first episode, but it turns into, like, this much bigger, uh, all-encompassing thing and, and tied into, you know, the opioid epidemic that's, you know, still going on in this country. So uh, I, I recommend checking that out. It's on Netflix,
1: The Pharmacist. I did want to mention that I also did, you mentioned this true crime series, uh, I did watch the second episode of McMillions on HBO. We talked about this last week. And I it, this this second episode, I'm not as enjoying as much as the first. It feels like they're really, like, stretching this out. Like, uh, to give you an idea, the first episode leads up to the realization that that there's this guy named Uncle Jerry who might be in charge of this whole scam to scam McDonald's out of you know millions of dollars, and he's having his family win these prizes. Who is he? He might be part of this, you know, this uh, the people that are running the campaign, the marketing campaign, and then the second episode is basically asks, oh, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's this other Jerry. Who is the real Uncle Jerry? And like the whole episode is just like examining that, and it feels like it's kind of slowing down a bit. Ben, are you still watching us?
0: I am. I watched it and actually enjoyed the second episode. I think a little bit more really? than the first one, just because that that one FBI agent guy is uh, was not in it for the uh, first half. And so I, I find him to be um, alternately obnoxious and enjoyable, um, maybe leaning a little bit more toward the obnoxious side. So the fact that he wasn't in it uh, and this, mo- this episode sort of um, tied it into organized crime, um, and like the crime families and all that stuff, I found it to be a little bit more interesting than the first episode. But maybe that's because I've read the article and remembered some of the stuff from the first episode yeah. and didn't really recall a lot from the second episode. So it felt more fresh to me. But I guess your mileage may vary on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I did think it was clever how they introduced this is the guy that's probably Uncle Jerry. And then the second episode's like, ah, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's this yeah. other guy. Uh, but it, it just felt like it was – it should have been like maybe a half an hour not like, what is it? An hour. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think that probably the whole series, like each episode should be only half an hour or something, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, It's you are the only one here. You are the hero that we deserve. You went to the theater, (laughs) you saw Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm seeing a mixed response online. I'm actually seeing some people I trust that say this is a great movie. And I'm also seeing some people I trust that say this is the worst movie they've seen this year. So, which is it?
2: They're both wrong. It's perfectly fine. Um, I will say Sonic the Hedgehog, I actually went in anticipating kind of a disaster, but an enjoyable disaster, something that I could maybe, maybe could reach cult status and become something that you watch while incredibly high or drunk. Um, It's not really that, um, and it's not really a great movie either. It just kind of is a perfectly fine movie that, feels a little bit like a remnant of the late 90s, early 2000s kind of kids films that played with uh, animated characters going into the real world. And as a result, felt very hackneyed, especially because of, especially the jokes, which um, seem to be written with a very much older audience in mind. Um, I went to see it with, uh, you know, a screening that was full of kids. And One funny one thing that like I noticed was um, uh, they these kids in my screening laughed less than the kids did during Doolittle, which I feel like is not a great sign for Sonic. Um, But yeah, it's um it's mostly fine, but it is elevated by a really terrific, elastic performance by Jim Carrey, who plays the film's villain. Dr. Robotnik, and he plays him almost like an evil Ace Ventura, very over-the-top, very loud and bombastic, and kind of the only one who seems to be aware of the campy uh, film that Sonic should be. Everything else is played almost overtly sincere in a way that uh, really doesn't jibe with the the, rant, the jokes, the frequent jokes about Olive Garden and I don't know why they made jokes about Olive Garden so much and uh, it almost felt like they were promoting it uh, and then you know other sort of timely jokes like at one point they made a joke about Hillary's emails and I was like that's not going to age well, it's they're not aged at all well now yeah and, 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 uh, and kids
1: like know all <laughs> yeah, about that the
2: kids obviously know about that and about plutonium as well and I was like this is a very oddly written joke and um, you know there's also various Vin Diesel fast and furious jokes which just felt very like it was trying very hard to be smart and timely and um and relevant and ended up failing on both on all counts but yeah sonic the hedgehog it's you know it's not great it's not it's not (laughs) terrible but it's just like very mediocre
1: i'm actually surprised to hear that jim carrey stuff like works because in the trailers it was kind of cringeworthy for me and it Mm feels like i i have like the impression that if like the East Ventura movie came out today, it would not like work in today's environment. Like the over-the-topness. Like, do you like? Do you think it works? Like, would, I think you... it works. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> you sound like you're not convinced, but it does. It's one of the few sort of real, genuinely fun elements of this film, which uh, is about a character who can run really fast and yet spends the entire time in a car.
1: Why is he in a car if he can drive so fast?
2: Like, well, because he doesn't know the way to San Francisco and he needs to be driven there for some reason by James Marsden. it's like yeah. can't James
1: <laughs> Marsden just give him an iPhone or a map or
0: <laughs> Or can't Sonic just run around the entire world real quick until he figures
1: out where it is?:
2: <laughs> You would think so, but um, you know we have to have a buddy comedy and um, poor James Marsden tries his best.
1: That's unfortunate. Uh, you saw uh, one of my favorite movies from a couple of years back, uh, Fighting With My Family. This is a movie that I don't think a lot of people saw, but I, I'm not saying it's great, but I, I really enjoy, enjoyed it. What did what you think of Fighting With My Family?
2: Uh, that's a more recent film, isn't it? it? didn't just come out last year. I
1: think it was the year before last.
2: Okay. Um, right? Yeah. Am, am I right about that? Oh, uh, it's a 2019 film, apparently. Uh, so okay, maybe been, I was wrong. It feels like a long time.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think it was at Sundance last year.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, But yeah, I watched Fighting with My Family because uh, I was – dropped on Hulu recently and I have just been a big fan of Florence Pugh and the range that she's had and was curious about this sort of small little British comedy drama about wrestling. I can't say that when the trailers hit or when I heard about this movie uh, the first time around, I was very interested. I don't really have an interest in wrestling, but um, I enjoyed this movie. It's really charming. Florence Pugh is almost unrecognizable in this film and it feels like this really... um, you know, scrappy and delightful little British. Film about a uh, wrestling family, very tight knit, um, and um, the two siblings who apply to be in the WWE, and only Paige Florence Pugh's character gets in, and she uh, goes to try out for in the competitive training program, and ends up feeling really isolated and uh, um, from her family and from her friends, and by the uh, the competitive, uh, very shallow. Um, nature of the competition but it's um it's really great it's um i I loved florence Pugh in this film and while i don't really have an interest or a knowledge of wrestling i was able to follow the ins and outs of it really well and yeah it's just a charming nice little film that um uh took me by surprise
1: and it's actually kind of sad because uh this wrestler page after i saw this film because i watched wrestling but like way before any of this and I, I did some research. I like did some you know YouTubing uh, on this wrestler page. And uh, two a year or two before this movie came out, she actually suffered an injury, which basically caused her to have to retire from the business. So it's like there's this movie coming out celebrating you being the youngest uh, you know champion in the titles history at the at age 21, and like her rise to popularity, and it, it, it came so short shortly after it but the movie was already you know in production (laughs) so uh it's it's kind of a sad story for her anyways um what else have you been watching
2: uh i have been watching rami which is a comedy series on hulu that uh i really enjoying. um it's uh, I remember hearing first about it when it won the Golden Globe for uh, Best Actor, Rami Youssef, who helped create this series, uh, won the uh, the award. And um, so I decided to check it out. And it's this really funny, sharp, incisive uh, millennial comedy series that feels very much like a spiritual successor to Master of None, especially in the ways that it sort of deals with um, a young millennial immigrant or second generation immigrant who is kind of trying to uh, reconcile his uh, ties with his culture with his own sort of uh, lifestyle. And um, it stars uh, Rami Yusuf as Rami Hassan, a first-generation Egyptian-American who uh, is trying to get more in touch with his Islamic religion and be a more devout Muslim. Uh, but he finds that it starts to uh, get in the way of how um, the sort of like casual sex and the, and the sort of more slacker lifestyle that he's enjoyed up until now. And um, he finds that, like, the divide between the Muslim community and the community that he has grown up with uh, is uh, more um, polarizing than he anticipated, than he had thought of before. So it's a really uh, well-written, really funny um, series that uh, I, yeah, I I really enjoyed. I especially recommend this if you like Master of None, girls, other series that kind of tap into that um, millennial generational angst. Um, and yeah, it's it's fantastic. And that's Rami on Hulu.
1: On Hulu. And Fighting With My Family did come out in February. So that it was just it was so long ago. It was a year ago. Uh, I, I can barely remember it. Anyways, uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, I, this past week, tried the Cherry Vanilla Coke Zero. This is a new flavor of Coke Zero. And, uh, you know, I have to try something because Brad is not here with us today. And I'm here to report that it basically tastes like uh, like a cherry cream soda, if that's possible. So if that sounds good to you, try the Cherry Vanilla Coke Zero. Uh, and that's in stores everywhere. I found it in Target. Uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. Uh, I... This past week, I went to Disneyland and went on Rise of the Resistance. I, I actually got on, unlike the previous time where I, I, we showed up and tried to get a boarding group and had an epic fail. Uh, we recorded this video because uh, Disney has released... Um, they, they have a uh, an app that you can basically play in the park. It's called the Play app. It is basically supposed to like help your time in lines feel more fun. So there's like games you can play in lines... It's the app that turns into the data pad when you're in Galaxy's Edge and you can hack things, you can translate things, you can uh, do all that kind of stuff. Uh, But in The Rise of the Resistance, the ride, the new attraction at Disneyland and also Hollywood Studios and Disney World, there is a new game for that where... Basically, when when you're online, you can choose to, an affiliation. You can choose to be first order. Or you can choose to be the resistance, and I chose to be the resistance, and Kitra chose to be the first order. And while online, she's like, a scanning certain packages, packages, giving information to the first order, so that uh, it will it, it, that later comes back. Like when when you're in the ride, there's moments in the ride that you're like. Oh, that happened because Kitra scanned this and alerted them of this. Uh, so it, it kind of feels like you're a part of the ride story. I, I was part of the resistance and I was helping Finn, who was on a first order Star Destroyer. He was trying to, with his green team, he had lost his team and he was there to d- delete some resistance data banks off the Star Destroyer, some information they had on us. And. And, uh, he, I, I helped him like programs, some droids into like these droid units that like are attached to transports. And those are the transports that end up being the ride. So it, it ends up feeling like you are a part of what happens in the story, which is kind of cool. But it also means that like when you're in the line and stuff, hanging out with your friends and chatting and having fun, you're on your phone, like playing games and stuff. So, uh, you can see my whole video on that. I'll link that in the show notes. Jacob, what have you been playing this week?
3: Uh, I played the Arkham Horror card game, and this is a g- game for Fantasy Flight Games. They have a whole Arkham Horror line of games, which is all based on uh, Lovecraft, Weird Fiction, Cosmic Horror stuff. And there's the main board game. There's a bunch of other different spin-offs and side games. And the card game is uh, new-ish. It's a few years old. And it's part of their LCG system, Living Card Game. Where there's no like booster packs of random cards. You, you, there are tons of expansions, but they're all you know what you're getting in them. You can choose to buy what you want to buy. But this one unique from other living card games. That's fully cooperative. You play against the game. You and the other player, or me and my wife played this time. We can play up to four players. Uh, you pick your character. You build a deck around that character, and your deck is not just uh, a bunch of cards. It's meant to represent you as a person. Various skills, various items, various friends, and the main box of the three scenarios you can play uh, either individually or as a campaign campaigns recommended you you carry over your deck from from scenario to scenario you remove cards you add new cards and you essentially build your deck and advance your deck uh to become stronger to deal with each situation as you go ahead and more expand you buy more expansions you get more uh you know more scenarios to play more cards to add to your deck and what's really fun is that there are negative cards. You can get negative cards out of your deck when you draw them, actually do bad stuff to you. So it's not just your deck becoming stronger, your deck becomes weaker as well. So it's about trying to balance your character and keep them alive uh, and keep them strong, even as your deck starts getting flooded with stuff that's going to hurt you. And I found it really satisfying and really fun. It's, it's a very, you know, it's not like an entry-level co-op game, like Pandemic If is like, you know, a much easier game if you want a game to play you know casually. But someone who has played a lot of card games likes this theme and likes the idea of having an RPG element of carrying over a character from uh, game to game and your deck being your character. I had a great time with this. That's uh, the Arkham Horror card game.
1: Cool. Okay. Uh, that does it for today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at Slash You can find links to the things that we mentioned in today's episode in the show notes. That includes the videos I mentioned and uh, the Sweatbox documentary that's on YouTube. Uh, this podcast is published every week on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at com. and rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you tomorrow.
3: Peter. Hey, hey Peter. <clears throat> yeah,
1: uh, Jacob, uh, Brad's not here today, so we, we, I don't think we have to do the um, you know the book thing.
3: Oh, well, the thing is, since Brad's not here, I had to go into the past, Peter. I'd open a time tunnel, and I had to go look into all of your childhoods in order to find this round of insults from the Gargantuan Book of Insult, Offense, Interfernery, sharp retorts, Reposts, Caustic Quips, and Inplay Put Downs by Louis A. Safian. So I've opened this book to the juvenile Liquids section, and I found insults relevant to all of your childhoods.
1: I don't think I was a juvenile delinquent, but okay. Uh,
3: Peter, the only only sure cure for kids like him is birth control. Wow. Hmm. Ben, he's so tough, he's been turned down by every reform school in the country. (laughs) H.T., she's such a delinquent, she can go to reform school on a scholarship.
2: Uh Ah.
3: Uh... Chris, he hangs out with such a tough neighborhood that a cat with a tail is considered a tourist.
1: These ones aren't even funny. I mean, not that they're normally funny, but, like... This is a
3: special level
1: of
2: funny.
3: (laughs) Well, Peter, uh, you say you're a delinquent because when you were uh, repressed as a child. Your parents punished you, and when you sawed a cat in half, you gave his grandmother the hot foot.
2: Oh, my God. What the hell?
1: Wait, 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 wait. Let's rewind and dissect that one. What, What happened?
2: Like, why did I saw that cat? Yeah,
3: why you did said I it saw? because you were oppressed as a child. Your parents punished you when you sawed the cat in half and gave his grandmother the hot foot. Uh. I feel like the hot foot was like a a peppy
0: phrase that people used in like the 1950s, and we have no idea what it means. And that's the only way that you'd be able to make sense of this is if you knew what the hot foot meant. I yeah. don't know.
1: Yeah, this joke Peter, is like Sonic the Hedgehog in 50 years. Deliquid.
3: Peter says he's a delinquent because he was repressed as a child. His <laughs> parents punished him when he saw the cat in half and gave his grandmother the hot foot. <sighs> Peter says he's a delinquent because yeah. he was repressed as a child. Yeah, yeah. apparently,
2: yeah. the hot foot is a prank where the prankster sets the victim's shoelaces or shoes on fire with a match or lighter.
3: Is that what it is?
0: Okay, all right. That sounds like a 1950s <laughs> prank. <So. laughs>
3: Peter says he's a delinquent because he was repressed <laughs> as the child. His parents punched him when he saw the cat in half and gave his grandmother the hot foot. Peter, please end this.